Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hi, welcome to the Football Writers Podcast. My name is Mike Calvin. I'm joined by David Priest, goalkeeper, coach, and columnist, and Seb Stafford Bloor, editor of Tifo Football. Now, we could probably agree Eden Hazard is one of the best footballers on the planet, but I wish he'd make his mind up. He says he loves playing for Chelsea under Sarri. He appears to cover a move to Real Madrid. Now he fancies playing for Jose Mourinho. Is he just bored in International Week or is he at a crossroads in his career? What do you think, Dave? Well, he's, uh, he's in an age now where the next move's uh, really important. You know, there's, there's no second chances after this one, really. Um, he's in a great position. Uh, I think it, when a club like Real Madrid comes in with it, uh, it comes in for you, you don't, you don't see many mm. fans stand, or ma- managers, for that matter, standing in your way. Uh, it's a dream move for him. Uh, but the problem is that I think he's probably third on their list of most wanted players, and uh, and he knows that as well. So I think he's just just trying to keep everyone happy. Who are the other two then? Oh, I'd say Neymar and uh, and Christian Eriksen. Uh, just from what I was reading in uh, in some of the Danish newspapers yesterday, saying that uh, they think that he's uh, that Eriksen's above Hazard. Uh, of course, he's younger. Uh, they'll they'll get more. Uh, They'll get more out of him, and perhaps he's more the player that you want. And, and if certainly if they get Neymar, you wouldn't have thought that uh, that Hazard would be uh, would be needed anymore. Mm, yeah, I suppose irrespective of all that, it's a nice scene setter for Jose Mourinho at the bridge on the Saturday lunchtime. Um, is he in a minority of one in wanting to play for Jose Mourinho? I think he's actually been quite smart. I think, um, I mean, Mourinho has probably damaged his, his reputation a little bit across the continent, but the one chairman, president, whatever, owner, who will always love Mourinho is Florentino Perez. Even despite what happened last time he was at Madrid, he would still happily appoint him if Lopetegui uh, has to be moved on mid-season, I think, and if, if Mourinho was to become uh, free. I, I don't know, it's a strange one because Hazard never seemed happy under Mourinho. He also seemed, I think, sort of for much of the time that he spent in England, Hazard seemed to ha- have had to operate in almost in a box that kind of shallow left position where you know he's playing you know one twos with players on the edge of the box and trying to move from there whereas the player we've seen in the last few weeks certainly the first few weeks of this season seems freer more expansive broader you, you, we're finally getting to see just what a good player he actually is and for the first time in his career there's a legitimate conversation for him being the best player in Europe at the moment and that's that's not a coincidence and that certainly didn't happen on the Mourinho so I think it's I think it's political. I think he's uh, being well advised, or maybe he's just being smart. I'm not sure. I think so because if if, if Real Madrid don't come calling for him, then you know, and he wants uh, even more money or mm-hmm. a, a different kind of uh, move, then you know, Manchester United's obviously one, yep. one place where he could go. But just going back to the, to you know the what he's talking in midweek about uh, about Mourinho and. Uh, how he's apologised to him because he thought that he was he was one of the main reasons why uh, he, he got the sack and and I think sometimes we we think the players are I don't know more cynical or even a little cleverer than than what they really are because once you go out on that pitch once Hazard goes in front of thirty five forty thousand at Stamford Bridge then he's not going to try and lose the game or not try and win games he wants to impress and uh, and to think that some players can switch it on and off or try to switch it on and off it's I don't think it's professional pride isn't it yeah yeah exactly and you know and, and there is a no matter what you you think about a manager when when a manager gets fired whether you're playing or not 
if you've played a part in that and you haven't played well, there is a guilt, you know, there is a, a feeling that's that you, you, you kind of, I don't know, that maybe that you owe them something, but you know, that you, that you let them down and it's, uh, he clearly feels that as well. Mm. But players quickly move on to trying to oh, impress course, the next yeah, guy, yeah, don't yeah. they? It was interesting, you, you mentioned, you floated that possibility of Mourinho mm -hmm. maybe going back to Real Madrid. Do you think that's realistic? I don't know, Mike. I just I don't know where else he would go. I think if you sort of if you look at the mentality of the modern super club and what's important to them, the football, of course, but also the image and the branding and the kind of and the style of football they play. I mean, can you imagine, for instance, Paris Saint Germain appointing Mourinho? I mean, they are you know they they, they in their own minds they stand for something which is not really you know. Um, his associations don't really tally with. Was that, that style without substance? I, your words, you know, <laughs> <laughs> your afternoon on Twitter after that. Um, <laughs> but I, 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 I don't know. I just think it's a kind of, um, you know, uh, it's it's the most likely place. Also, if you look at what's happening there at the moment, Madrid. You know, I, I understand why a player like Hazard would would cover that move. But do you really want to play for Madrid right now, where? You've got sort of five or six players, all of who were, were fundamental to their, to their European Cups, are coming towards the end. They're not at the end, but they're approaching that point in their careers. And, you know, there's no such thing as... At any given point, there aren't enough world-class players playing for any club just to default between cycles. You know, you don't go from the top of a cycle to another one just by virtue of a, you know, a few swift checks because the players don't exist. So Madrid are going to have to have a little bit of a... Yeah, transition's a bit of an overused word, but yeah, mm. that. So, a strange so, one. So maybe they see Mourinho as an upper-class Sam Allardyce. Uh, well, <laughs> that's practically libelous. <laughs> <laughs> maybe, but I mean, he's also, you know, uh, the pragmatism aspect of his management style, that applies to that kind of situation. Do you want to win and nothing else? Yes, if you're if you're Madrid. So, you know, that's a, that's a, a realistic option, I think. There's been sort of personal rivalries over the last few years with uh, Messi and Ronaldo and mm -hmm. that sort of... It's kept the focus on on the league, and it's interesting. Yesterday, that, uh, that uh, I can't remember his name, but the head of the league was saying that. Kibas. Yeah. yeah, and he he was saying that he, he wished he, his wish would be for Guardiola and Mourinho to be to be back in, uh, in the league, and then of, of course that's sort of spices that up again and gives uh, gives La Liga an, another real rivalry. Yeah, it'd be interesting to see what the reaction to Mourinho is when he goes back to the bridge. Is he almost destined to be respected rather than truly loved? I think just, of course, you've got to be respected. And I think he is, I mean, I'm not a Chelsea fan, but I mean, mm. I would imagine that he's still loved there for for everything that he's done for the club. Yeah, he's made the club what it is today. And they, you could say they, they wouldn't have been, even though he was manager at the time, they wouldn't have been European champions without him uh, being there beforehand. Uh, but just things chip away at, uh, at his legacy there, you know, and I still keep going back to the Eva Canero. Uh, yeah. Incident, whereas I still can't get my head round that he didn't try and head that off in any sort of uh, any form before it got to where it did. Mm. Uh, whether he meant it or not, that, you know that was another thing. But the fact that he didn't, he doubled he, down on it. Yeah, exactly. Well, yeah, it, David, when it happened. Yeah, and, 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 and I'm not saying it would have bought him more time or changed would have changed uh, what happened, uh, it changed mm. history. But just think from on a, on a human level and. Yeah, you know, he, he, he was stupid not to do that. Yeah, we're led to believe there's peace in our time at Old Trafford. Um, how fragile is that peace, Seb? Very, very. I mean, uh, I think it's really easy to to sort of um, not get carried away, but allow you know three quick goals against Newcastle to to paper over a lot of cracks. I just I think there's a fundamental issue in the dynamic at Old Trafford, and winning. You know, against a poor Premier League team doesn't doesn't change that. I think, you know, soon we'll we'll be in another transfer window, and I fully expect all the same old problems to come back. And you know, the the dysfunction that exists between Ed Woodward and Jose Mourinho, and the vast ideological chasm which seems to exist between them, that will create more problems. It's just it's it's an untenable situation without, you know, it, unless a director of football comes in or a technical director or something, or, or there is some sort of renovation of the footballing structure there. I don't see how this has a happy ending. Because mm. we've got Paul Pogba mm -hmm. in the international break being Paul Pogba. He's, a, uh, he's basically been a fashion icon, icon this, this, this break, hasn't he? Um, let's look at maybe the midfield um, di dynamics of that game against Chelsea. Is that where the game could be won or lost? 
Well, I mean, if, if you look at those two areas, you, you'd, you'd think that uh, at the moment Chelsea would win that battle. Mm. Um, they, you know, seem to have a because they seem to have a plan. They seem to have a, a structure and a way of playing, and the players have quickly uh, bought into that. And whereas Mourinho, we, we, you talk about um, uh, structures, you you, you 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 see them play, and there's there's no pattern of play. There's no sort of, uh, there's no, you look at it and think, well, what's he trying to do here? Is he just relying on the uh, the, the quality of, of the players that he's got, individual quality? And that's what it seems like to me. Mm-hmm. With, um, you know, the, the other sort of flip side of this fixture is that it will you know, shine a beacon on, on Sarri as well. Mm-hmm. Um, give me a progress report. Mm. It's, it's really interesting because obviously when he came in the summer, he ditched, the three centre-back system, he renovated, he, he brought in, uh, brought David Luiz back in from the cold partner with Rudiger. That functions quite well. There are a few little issues. I mean, even you know, going back to their last game against Southampton, um, Danny Ings should have scored from underneath the crossbar. Uh, Ryan Bertrand had another very good chance. So there, there, there's, there, there are gaps there. The midfield is very interesting because he's moved Kante forward, brought Jorginho in, and he's actually he, he's, he's, he's getting a tune out of Ross Barkley which I never thought was possible. I just, I, I thought it was a conundrum that no one could fix, no one could solve. Um, I think the great success there is, firstly, the way they move the ball, what he's been able to get out of Hazard as well. Like, because he, he hasn't really got a forward who suits his style of play. I mean, he, you know, Giroud um, you know, has merit as a, a centre forward, obviously. Morata isn't quite mobile enough to, to replicate what was happening in Napoli. I mean, if you remember, he had Idris Mertens playing there. He's a very fluid player. He's an ad-libbing guy. Um, so with those restrictions, he's done remarkably well. He's an unbeaten team. No one really spoke about them before the beginning of the season. And also, when a new manager comes in, especially when, when one of these sort of high priest ideologues comes in, there's always this assumption that you've got two or three months of sort of everyone resisting the ideas, no one really knowing what's going on, and then it clicks, as it did with Conte, actually, really, mm. um, as it did with Guardiola. And yet there's this, it's, it's a... Chelsea have blended their kind of familiar sort of, you know, you know how they, at their best, they're a very mechanical team. Mm. They're a robotic sort of winning entity. Um, but they, they, they have some style with that. So he's kind of created this sort of best of both worlds situation. Whether that stands up when they go away to the Etihad Stadium, I don't know. Or, you know, when, when, they, when they play Tottenham away or, you know, when they go to, um, when they go to Anfield. It's a different matter, but so far, so good. Absolutely. It's interesting. I, I don't think I'm being unkind here because most fans probably wouldn't have known that much about him when he was appointed. But within the game, I sense you know, he was you know, well respected. I found it very interesting that Eddie Howe mm. spent time with him at Empoli in 2015 studying his, his um, sessions. Um, does that tell us a lot when you get a, a young manager going to someone like that wanting to learn? Yeah, I think it's the reason why he's sort of so maybe refreshing or the people look up as well is because he's a bit of an outsider. Mm-hmm. You know, he, isn't, he hasn't come from within the game. He hasn't been in football since he was 15, 16 years old. So it's something different. He hasn't been shaped by other people around him. He's been able to think for himself. And the way that he's come through, he's been able to... The way that he, he, he plays, uh, he's been able to shape, like I said, without any sort of... With any blinkers on, any restraints, and I think that uh, sometimes that's that's great and it's refreshing for people, people like uh, Eddie Howe, mm. who have been in football, and it makes you think uh, totally differently. And I think it's it, it says a lot about Eddie Howe as well. Mm. Uh, the the fact that you know that he's willing to learn from from people who aren't met perhaps uh, the I don't know the 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 first that come to mind. Yeah. You look at Bournemouth, mm. sixteen points. Mm-hmm. They've done terrifically well, almost under the radar to a degree. Um <clears throat> they had their best away performance at Watford just before the break, yeah. which probably is significant since most of it's been founded on their home form. Um do we give clubs like Bournemouth enough credit? Probably not. I mean I, I think one of the reasons we don't is because and it's actually one of the reasons Bournemouth are successful. Not a lot changes at Bournemouth. There are no headlines with that side. They, you know, they are. They're not. I mean, I, I know Eddie Howe has made a, you know, a couple of signings over the summer, but they are not a, an improvement by transfer kind of team. Therefore, they don't attract a lot of attention. Um, but I think if you if you compare where they are and what they are, 
with the same last season. You know, especially going into the winter, they they look like a hopeless case. And I, I I think I think where Howe really deserves credit is what he's able to do with incumbent players. So last season, for instance, that they, they they you know they had all kinds of issues at home away. They they were such a soft touch. And over the winter, there was a kind of gradual hardening um, the system. And he's done that with players. You know, he's done that without taking the easy route of saying, right, well, I need a you know a fifty million pound forward from there and a twenty million pound defender from there. I mean, he, he's, he's, it's this organic development. It's, it's so impressive. Mm. And if you spend time with him, of course, he's a, he's a bright guy. He's an engaging person. He actually reacts to journalist questions as well. There's a lot to like that. Mm. And they've done really well. In the, I know taking your point, yeah. but you know they've done really well in terms of bringing players in. You know, Ake last season, Brooks this season, uh, Brooks, who was, mm. you know always looked a, good, a player at, at Sheffield United. Mm. Uh, Jefferson Lerma's just come in and he's just giving him time to bed in. Um, so there's a lot right strategically there, isn't there? Yeah, exactly. And there's you said about uh, it seems to be the way forwards. Teams in the past did what Fulham did all the time. They just think we've got no yeah. Premier League experience. You know, there's wholesale changes, and when that happens, you know, it's like a flick of a coin whether they can all gel or not. Yeah, and, and it's a bit sort of throw the mud at the wall and see what sticks. Yeah, ex exactly. And so if, if you uh, if, if you keep that core of players together, and he has done, he's kept a lot of players together for, uh, since they got promoted. You know, that accounts for a lot these days. And I think if you just keep tweaking it every year, like he has done with one or two big signings, I mean, he, with Brooks, of course, I don't think anybody thought that. Everyone knew he was going to be a great player, going to be a good player, but nobody thought he was going to sort of hit the ground running like he has done. And he's he's made, uh, yeah, he's improved even further. Yeah, when we're talking about Eddie Howe, should we be talking about him as a credible successor to someone like Mourinho at Old Trafford? If that was purely a footballing conversation, yes. I just it, it's like as we said earlier, Mike. I, I I don't think that counts for as much as it used to. I think you know when you when you when one of those clubs appoints a successor to, you know, to a Mourinho or to a Wenger in the past, they want a a, a commercial payoff as well as, you know, a, a footballing solution. If if Eddie if if you want someone that's going to to create stability within your side, is going to be a is going to oversee gentle improvement over a long period of time. Absolutely, I don't think that's really what the bigger clubs want. It's not right, but I I, I don't see it. I'd like to, but I, I don't mm. I don't think it will happen. We've got um, um, another uh, instalment of the managerial bromance that is David Wagner and Jurgen Klopp on, on Saturday in the BT Sport game, Liverpool at Huddersfield. Um, it almost feels a bit last season, that, doesn't it? Um, has, have things changed fundamentally at Huddersfield in terms of, you know, people are looking at that now. And OK, last season might have been a miracle. This one might be a, a step too far. You see a lot of teams that uh, work a certain way and they're obviously punching well above the weight and they're, if they, they're going to, uh, to implement the ideas that manager wants, everyone has to be 100% and if they're not 100% then they, look like a, they don't look like a Premier League team anyway. I don't know whether they've gone a little bit more direct this season and, and, uh, and it's a, the, the hard work of, uh, and the enthusiasm of, of first getting into the, the Premier League, that's sort of ebbed away now and it's everything's hard work, it seems, at the moment. Yeah, they, they remind me of 90s Bradford. When they came up the first season, very similar, no one gave them any chance of surviving Paul Jewell. They did, and then in the second season, because it's almost as if there's a, you know, there's an emotional debt to pay mm. after you've, yeah. you know, if you, if you, anything above 18th is always going to be a success. And when they achieve that, there's this sort of, I don't know, a... Uh, it all feels like a downturn. Yeah. In that context, then, is would Wagner be forgiven for starting to look around, you know, quite distinctly in the managerial market? You know, there are already uh, murmurs from Fulham about Jokanovic, um, simply because of what we, we spoke about earlier. Um, you know, do you truly have one eye on the next move? I think, like we talked about Hazard, he's in a great position. Mm. If they go down, I can't see them wanting to, to get rid of him. Um, his association again with Klopp, that does him a lot of good. And so the more successful that Ian Klopp is, the more highly thought of he's going to be as well. Um, and, yeah, if somebody comes in with him who he thinks have got a, have got a bigger budget, bigger club, per se, uh, yeah, I think it would be, uh, it would be off. Mm, I was very struck. Said by uh, what Sarri was talking about, where he, excuse me, he and Klopp were on the touchline at, at Stamford Bridge, and basically, you know, 
Klopp turned to him and said, look, I'm loving this, even though Liverpool were losing <laughs> at the time. Yeah. You don't get that very often, do you? No, no. It almost feels like a lot of these, these bigger games are sort of mini wars. It's, yeah. always, it's always got to have not just a stale product on the pitch, but animosity in the technical area. And there's got to be a little subplot where both managers kind of hate each other in some way. And there's a, there's a handshake melodrama at the end. And <laughs> yeah. The whole thing was refreshing. The, the whole afternoon was great. Just the just sort of the the aesthetic of this wonderful game played in the right spirit, and managers wanting their teams to play in the right way. It was great for the league. It was a yeah a great spectacle that. Mm. With Klopp, you know, he made it very plain before the break that he thought the nation's league was senseless. He's got even more reason now, hasn't he? When you when you look at um, Van Dijk coming back early and on you know on a broader front, uh, the injury the muscle injury suffered by Mo Salah. Liverpool probably are, 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 you know, okay, you can probably say, well, they'll get through a Huddersfield test. Mm. But before they get to Arsenal on November the 3rd, they need to have got all that sorted out, don't they? Yeah, I, I think it's, uh, it's just a sort of a hangover from the, uh, from the World Cup, but it seems like we're all sort of international footballed out. Mm -hmm. I think, mm -hmm. uh, of course, the, the, the Nations League is more interesting than just pure friendlies and lower down the scale I think sort of like in group C and D that's where the stories have really oh, been oh the Gibraltar game yeah exactly oh, yeah. 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 And, and, and another side being able to get uh, get their, their first wins in, in a long time you know it's that, that's where the stories have been and that's where the value in this tournament is for, for those sides but I, don't, I think that uh, yeah I think everyone's just a little bit tight and, and without fail I think everyone would rather have uh, a run of Premier League games this weekend rather than international games. Yeah, because I, I, not for the first time I found myself agreeing with Gareth Southgate where he talked about, you know, the Premier League putting clubs in an impossible oh, situation, yeah. you know, starting two weeks earlier than the Bundesliga, for instance. Do you think he's got a point? Oh, absolutely. I think it's incontestable. I mean, think if you think of uh, some of the clubs who don't have the, the finances to rotate in almost a kind of a, a second eleven to get them through the opening month, you look at, look at Tottenham. Don't look spent. It's not even November, and they look absolutely knackered because you know the core of their side is made up of players who who got to the semi-final and played a third-place playoff, and you know two weeks off, back into to pre-season, and straight into the Premier League. It's it's um, it, it feels like it's almost it's almost the Premier League wanting to get a march on the rest of Europe yeah. and being the first league to open up. And I know um, uh, Ligue 1 started the week before, but you know just just. It, long term, there has to be a little bit more common sense applied. They, they should have just, it's, you know, it's an English league. They should have just uh, sort of catered for England getting to the final, yeah. no matter what, mm. yeah. no matter how fanciful that they'd might have, be. At they'd, the time. they'd have been laughed at for that. Yeah. No, yeah, but, you know, <laughs> yeah, but <laughs> there was the sense that they yeah. did that. That was part of the the, the equation, wasn't yeah. it? Yeah, and, and then so then you put it back two weeks, like we said, to the start of the season. Back, put it back two weeks, and then yeah. put that on the end of the season because I think it would be more value if. Rather than the players finishing was the 13th, 4th, 14th of May, mm -hmm. then having a week off or 10 days off and then going back to, to meet up in nationals, they'd be far far better finishing sort of later in May and then going straight That's to the England. Yeah, yeah and, and then yeah, having the rest after that. Yeah, do, do you think we're, we're uh, you know, reaching some sort of uh, point of no return on, on that sort of relationship between clubs and countries? You know, Tottenham mm -hmm. were really uh, annoyed with Roberto Martinez. You know, when he was you know revealing the extent of um, you know the Tongans in injury. You know, I know people don't like it. Are they now coming to hate it? Possibly, possibly. I mean, the Vertonghen thing. I mean, Tottenham. Tottenham have always been vague with their player injuries and their reports and you know players. and their stadium plans, by the way. <laughs> yeah. yeah, true. Um, the, I, I don't. I, I think hate's too strong a word. I think in this country there is a little bit of goodwill. I mean, I can only speak for myself. I look forward to England games a little bit more now. Um, I know the. I was thinking more of clubs, though. Well, I, I think that's already, already always existed, Mike. I think there's always been a resentment between you know the clubs who employ the players and pay the players. You know, you go back as far as Newcastle's issue with Michael Owen. I mean, it's it, 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 it's 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 set up to be antagonistic that relationship. And it, you know, any time you you take a player away from his club, and you know, especially if he's a South American player, for instance, and he's got jet lag factored in and long flights and stuff, then you know, you, you it, it's very difficult to make that harmonious. Mm. Um, yeah. Do, do you think we've we you know, if you look at um, Spurs, they've got a, a combustible game 
at West Ham. Mm. Um, doesn't look like you know, Christian Eriksen's going to be around any time soon. You know, you've got good contacts in Denmark. What are they saying about it? Because there, there seems to be this hint that it could be quite a long-term injury. Yeah, uh, they did say it was a sort of chronic stomach uh, a problem. That's when, when they mentioned sort of the word chronic, then it's you know it's going to just take uh, rest more than anything else. Yeah, then, well, then you think treatment. operations. And, yeah, yeah, well, like, football wars, don't yeah, you? exactly. And when you start messing around with sort of the stomach, it's it's a very delicate area, mm. uh, and you can't rush uh, rush people back. And there's a, a hell lot going on now, not just in football, but in the sort of wider world about sort of the the mesh that they they put in uh, into abdominal injuries and uh, and you know. It's exactly the same as what they put into, into footballers. And, and once you start delving into, into sort of the abdominal region, you always have problems with it. It's notorious. So it's, um, it'll be something that they'll probably want more rest. And that's bad, bad news for Spurs because they won't uh, and he won't want to, to start getting going under the surgeon's knife. Yeah, because the rest is needed. I was, I was um, reading something on Football 365 um, this morning where they talked about Ericsson mm -hmm. having played 255 games in 50 months so in other words around about five a month that is some workload also if you look at the stats underneath that and the distance he's covered generally you find Christian Ericsson probably covers a kilometer two kilometers more than any other Tottenham player on the field every single week it's not a surprise it's, it's completely Tottenham's fault they, they've invited a situation where they, they've run this small group of players who they're dependent on into the ground. They thought they'd been terribly smart over the summer, not adding anyone to supplement their group, and this is the result. Muscle injuries absolutely everywhere. Mm. So it's hard, hard to have sympathy. Yeah. I suppose one thing the, the break does is, is uh, almost sometimes intensify that climate of, of hype and, and impatience. You know, if you look at Jaden Sancho, mm. made an admittedly... You know, terrific impression in 10, 15 minutes, whatever it was at the end of the Croatia game. Suddenly we were talking about a £100 million <laughs> transfer chase between four or five clubs, the usual suspects. Yeah, well, door. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But, I mean, it's um, what you'd be paying for then, if you're going to pay sort of £100 million for for Jane Sancho, what you're paying for is £100 million for an impact sub because he's only proven that being that at the moment. And I know that's sort of... Um, even the Dortmunds, there might be a clamour for him to... Uh, he to, started to, the last to, couple of games. Yeah, though, to, to start, st uh, begin to start games. But sometimes I think um, we're too quick to do that. And if somebody's having that much of an effect from the bench, as long as things are going OK on the, on the pitch with the starting eleven, mm. you know, there's no need to, to rush it and just keep, keep that going and just give them one, one game here and there. Mm. But I think it's... Uh, yeah, it's, uh, it, it's just... The, the acceleration of, uh, of well, the, the, yeah, the, the hype's accelerated mm. by uh, everyone wanting them just to to be the next best, uh, the next big thing, and to be the the answer to, to all our problems. Mm. He seems to be being well managed, yeah. and you know, is the best solution just to you know, let the kid get on and develop. Yeah, continuity is a great incubator for that kind of talent, and he's he's found a situation. I mean, the advantage of Dortmund is he's he's away from England. So every time he steps on a pitch for England and gives the you know the, the kind of 10, 15 minutes that he that he had um, last week, you're going to see this this expectation ratcheted up. As soon as he goes back to his club, okay, highlights of his assists and his goals are going to appear on on English Twitter. But generally, he's allowed to sort of grow in the dark a little bit, and I think that's very good for him. And also, you know, in Germany, may, maybe he's very well regarded, but nobody really cares in the same way that we would hear about the prospects of an English player long-term because he is another country's player. So just leave him be. I mean, he's in a, a great place. Uh, Lucien Favre is, is a you know, very well-regarded manager. You know, it's, uh, there, there is no rush to change his circumstances for, for a couple of years at least. Yeah. Mm. And, and he, the player we're talking about that we, we need, somebody who's creative and uh, you know, it, it can give us that spark, he's not. You know, speaking to, to coaches at, uh, that had had him in sort of youth size and academy size at Manchester City. The word they use is maverick, mm. not in a negative way. Said you know he was he was his excellent attitude, always working hard, but he, he did play with a real freedom that sort of gets ground out here. The, the more you, you the, mm. the levels you go up, you know you become you, more restraints put on you, and he hasn't allowed that. And, and the fact that he turned down a very good contract at Manchester City yeah. to, to go to go abroad just shows that well he's thinking about more than just. Uh, 
more than just monitoring. And the people around him are doing that as well, which I think of is course, key, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. You know? And uh, is there a, I always look at him as, and I see there's little flashes of a Sahar in there where mm -hmm. you know, he is developed in urban football, really, in cage football, mm -hmm. where you know, that maverick nature is, yeah. is indulged and encouraged. Um, do you think that's significant? I think, yeah, I mean, I, I, I mean, David's probably a better place to answer this than I am, but I've always thought that players who grow up in a, in a kind of sanitised environment seem to be overcoached. They mm. seem to have this kind of, English players for a long time seem to be right, where you can have two, three touches, but then you've got to move the ball. Yeah. It doesn't really matter what you do with it as long as you move it somewhere. I mean, I don't know. You, you, no, no, it's, yeah, it's, it's true. That, or, no, but that, but that, I mean, it's not just the coaches that coach that. You sometimes, you know, as a player, you, you, you know, you, you don't want people taking too many risks. Certainly, when I was younger, you think that I don't want somebody taking somebody in midfield because of what might happen negatively. Yeah, you've got to take, you've yeah. got to take the fear out of it. And it, as I got older, you learn to appreciate that uh, you don't always have to have your centre forward working really hard because he needs to conserve his energy for when he's got the ball. Mm. And uh, and you, you've got to change the the way that we think. And I think looking at games now, when I go to to watch sort of academy games, you see that a lot more. That it's great to see the freedom that's that's and confidence that the players play with without sort of feelings if like they, they have got restraints on them. Mm. But the overriding factor is that football is a massive business, mm. and you know, very cold decisions are taken within that business. Now, let's look at Arsenal and Ars um, um, Aaron Ramsey as an example of that. He's going to run his contract down, um, you know, get an absolute shed load of money when he moves on in the summer. Um, is that understandable? I mean, in a dispassionate way, yes, because it's probably a legacy of Mesut Ozil's contract. I mean, that was a vast sum of money that Arsenal have committed to him and, and this is probably the knock-on of that. But no, I don't understand it because I think it, you know, Ramsey's one of those players you have to replace. And how much is that going to cost when you do? Because he, he is, okay, he's not currently a starter on that side, but he's still a very good player and he's still someone, if he wasn't in your squad, you have to, to replace with something somewhere. And that's what, 20, 30, 40 million pounds probably, even in a younger player with that kind of promise. Mm. I know. When we've got concentration on finances, do we sometimes don't know, don't know the full story? So if you look at Ramsey again, you know, the word coming out is for him to have a five-year contract with all the add-ons, the agents' fees, etc., that'll cost £100 million for one player. Mm. Yeah, and I think, you know, if you're not going to do £100 million outlay, then you, you're probably thinking, well, can we go in a, a different direction? Okay, he, he, he scored he scored goals in cup finals. He's a very good player, but they want to get back to another level again, to the level above. And mm. might they might they just think that we're, we're going to invest that more wisely somewhere else and in a younger player and and somebody's more effective? If they can attract that caliber of player, I mean they're not currently a Champions League side. They've got the 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 wealth to to attract that player but you know if you want to if you want to move to that next level if you want to sign a 24 25 year old player approaching his prime Champions League is important mm. so it's a bit of a gamble from Arsenal's perspective I think mm -hmm. when you look at you know the way the world is changing are Wolves a bit of a, a harbinger of, of what's going to come on in the future you've got a very very strong relationship let's put it like that with with, with Mendes mm -hmm. uh, Huge influx of money, you know, Chinese-driven. Uh, you know, the, the scouting network, I'm led to believe now, is nearly about 100 scouts. Yeah. I, well, I think so. I think we'd be naive not to expect other people to replicate that model. What I will say is that I, I, went, to, I went to Wolves about six months ago to do a piece to talk to some local fans. And Feels like a proper football club, doesn't it? That's exactly right. You, you go there, I mean, obviously, things like the, they've got one of the best museums in the country in Molyneux, so you know, anyone who, who's never been should, should spend a couple of hours there. But Fossin, by all accounts, have done a very good job of making sure people know that they are there for the sake of the football club, not just for vanity, not just for the sake of of maybe wanting to achieve something quickly with the first 11, they understand what they've bought. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it, it, it probably is going to be the model. I think there's going to be variants of that model in terms of the kind of people that follow the example. And that's going to be a little bit more of a lottery and it's certainly a bit more worrying because, you you know, at what point are these football clubs just, you know, potentially holding pens for the, for the ambitions of agents and... You know why? Why is this money flowing into, the, into into this country? What is it about these football clubs? 
which, what, what purpose are they serving these people beyond just the things that we care about? That's really the, the issue. So, yeah. Mm. Um, but is, is there you know, a simple you know, football reason for them doing well? You know, 15 points, uh, you know, home to Watford at the weekend. Uh, unchanged in eight games. They've conceded one goal in seven, unbeaten in six. Those numbers don't lie, do they? No, but the, it, it's okay to say that they, they, they're well backed. Forson have got the, the funds to take things to another level again. Mm -hmm. They can, uh, you know, I, th I think I, I think that they can. They have the funds if they want to to challenge for for the Premier League title. I mean, it's not this season, and maybe it's not this season, but certainly in the near future. But it's okay seeing somebody's got money. We've seen so many times, yeah, and the, cl the clubs have just frittered money away and uh, on vanity signings. And it's not like they've they've they've, they've bought some names. Moutinho's a name. Patricio's a name. Um, Neves, you know, he was. He's become a name. Yeah, he's become a name, but he was he, he was sort of one of the potentials. Mm -hmm. But the rest of them around them, you know, it's not. Uh, they're not household names that they've brought through. They're yeah. good players. Like Bolly, the centre-back, is a, yeah. a brilliant mm, yeah. player. Yeah. Really. You mentioned Neves there. Yeah. Is that going to be the acid test? Because Neves will attract the sort of 50, 60, 70 million bid from a Man City or United, yeah. whoever. Will we then gauge how serious Wolves are if they turn that down? I don't know. I mean, I, I think in that isolated case, there's a sort of sense of inevitability. I think it, that depends on the player's ambition. I think what, what will what will sort of set Wolves' long-term course if they, which they almost certainly will do, survive this season. They've proven to the continent, right, we're, we're a stable organisation, we make sensible football decisions, and then the ambition will start to creep up a little bit. I think that's what will set the tone. Neves, I don't know. I mean, I don't know what kind of agreements were in place when he joined the club, you know, with, you know, given who, who his agent is and how fond his agent is of shuffling his pieces around the chessboard. Mm. That's, I, I don't think that's a Wolves situation. I think that's, uh, yeah. But I, I, I think they are, they're very much for real. They, they, they are a, a scary proposition for, for the top six, certainly. Okay. Um, I'd like to give a, a good run at some of the, the questions from the listeners and the viewers. Uh, we'll start off with one on a club that you're quite familiar with, Newcastle, uh, with all the attendant psychodrama that usually goes on there. <laughs> um, the question is from uh, Gerd de Kaiser. Is Benitez really overachieving with Newcastle United? I think he's doing a very bad job. He's often parked the bus and still lost most matches. Isn't he past it? Well, he's certainly not past it. Um, I, I wouldn't say that at all. Um, I think because a lot of the games that are going into, because of everything that's going on in the background, OK, the fans are giving him a bit of a longer leash. He's very popular up there, as he was at Liverpool. Um, he becomes more popular because the owner becomes more unpopular, I think, as well. But I think that from a, from a neutral's point of view, which I, I probably think he is, uh, was asking the question there, you have to think that you'd want them to go into, into games with a little bit more ambition. Yeah. Because, OK, they can say, well, one of my old managers had a, a great, mm -hmm. uh, great saying where the, uh, the surgeon comes out of the operating theatre and says, oh, well, the operation went well, but the... the uh, the patient died anyway, <laughs> so it, it's kind of what's happening with with Newcastle. They're going to games where they're, they're deploying this sort of uh, defensive system, and they're not getting you know they're not getting run, run all over the place, but they're, they're not coming out with many points either. So it's mm. yeah, I, and it's okay for Benitez to say, well, we we were in this position last season. Well, then there's probably a reason you know something was going wrong then as well. Mm. So surely there's got to be some change there. Do you think? Uh, Dr. Dr. Stafford Bloor, the the, uh, <laughs> the situation is terminal there. What's your prognosis? You know, I, I spent the weekend reading Kevin Keegan's autobiography, and the whole thing was great. But the chapters about Newcastle are staggering. The second time about, um, and remember, this is quite some time ago now, and this is sort of entry level dysfunction. Uh, yes, it's terminal as long as um, the ownership remains in place, just because the priorities aren't right. The the the, the focus isn't on football. I've always thought that I, I agree with David in the sense that um, that yes, it could be a bit more attractive on the pitch, but you're not just battling as a Newcastle manager. You're not just battling your squad limitations. You're battling battling a culture. Um, that might be one of those sort of whifty things that people like me overemphasize. But you have to believe it's 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 a, it's a problem. I just don't I don't see where how Newcastle progress because what is it about that club that makes a better standard of player want to join? 
what, what you know, I'm beyond the fifty thousand fans and and you know what football means in Newcastle. I respect all of those things, but they're not more important, unfortunately, in the moment than the person who owns it and the people who he employs beneath him. It's nothing. It's not taking anything away from Wolves. Wolves is a is a big club. Yeah. Uh, they've got a huge history behind them. But can you? I just, Imagine for one second that if uh, if, if Fossen had, had bought uh, Newcastle, yeah, yeah, yeah. what would be going on there? Yeah. I mean, that whole city would just be, you know, it, it would be a blaze. Yeah, it? unbelievable. Yeah, yeah. and, and uh, obviously that's what they're, they're praying for, really. Okay. Um, Andy Sullivan asks, how do you think Thierry Henry will get on at Monaco? Nobody knows, do they? No. Nobody knows. I mean, it's uh, it's his first job. Okay, that he's he's been uh, he's been coaching under Martinez with Belgium, but we don't know what system he'll play. You know what, what what's his style going to be. You'd, you'd imagine it'd be attacking, but um, he's taken Kwame Ampadu, the Arsenal under eighteen coach, with him, mm, isn't he? Yeah. yeah. So I mean, it, it probably you know you need somebody who does the nuts and bolts of you know putting the cones out and setting up the sessions, and and, and that's the you know that's the it's realism. But it's um, it's it's certainly interesting to see which way he's going to go. But uh, probably it makes a better things, fit it, than Aston Villa, yeah. Yeah, and it makes things a little bit easier, you know, that he he's going to have a better squad. He's got a uh, sort of better backing as well. Uh, it's, it it puts a lot of things in his favour anyway. Okay. Um, we your Tottenham hat on probably uh, here, Seb. Uh, Mark Lynch. I try not to burst into tears. Like <laughs> yeah. Why do the media often peddle a negative narrative around Kane, but not to anyone else? Well, I'll disagree with that one. But he's had one season wonder, tap-in or penalty merchant, not scored in oldest, not done it in the big games, not done it in Europe, not done it for England, and now he's in a goal drought. Well, I, I don't think there's a media agenda against Kane. I think opposition fans are tribal. They... I don't think that's about Kane, though. I, I think that's just the way the game is. I think we have this culture now where, you know, part of being an opposition fan is to tell rival fan bases why they shouldn't be enjoying themselves. That's <laughs> it's a terrible illness in in contemporary football. But so no, I, I don't. I don't think there is. I I don't think I've ever met a, a journalist who doesn't like Harry Kane as a person um, and doesn't respect what he's achieved. I mean, maybe you know there are some sort of people on local beats who bang the drum for. You know, for their for their local players, but I I don't I don't really see that. No, he's very good with the media, isn't he? Oh, he is. I mean, he, he seems a very nice bloke. Yeah. But I mean, if there's anybody to blame the situation for, it, for whenever the Harry Kane doesn't score, it's Harry Kane himself because he set his hand his standards sky high. You know, so if he's not scoring thirty goals every season, then you know questions hey. questions will be asked. Why not? Why not? Because that's. That is normal. Yeah, well, Kane also, Kane is the first person to remove the excuses for himself. Like he is, you know, even this weekend, he said, no, I'm not tired. It's not, you know, you know, he's been, he's been offered that out many times this season already. You know, he, you know, when, when he, in the first sort of few games through August, people, every, every question Pochettino got or Kane got was about his fatigue and about his sort of the amounts of football he's played. And he's just, no, it's not nothing to do with it. So, yeah. Uh, Paul Fry asks, are we genuinely seeing the beginning of a conveyor belt of young English talent? And does this mean that the Qatar 2022 trophy target that was so widely disparaged is actually attainable? I don't know whether that comes a little bit too soon, but it's certainly, you know, like I said, watching a lot more academy football than I used to. It's difficult not to compare yourself again, compare those games against mm. the the own games you used to play. You were saying you level. watched England on the 17s. Yeah, and I thought they were brilliant. And in the space of a year, when they played USA last year, physically they're they're, they're quicker, stronger, uh, they look a lot physically bigger. But the way they played was just brilliant. And I think, like I said, comparing against sort of my time, sort of England under 18s and 19s, these players look. You know, far more advanced than, than what we were in, in every way. Um, and I think that it, it, it looks promising. You know, I was one of the first people that uh, was criticised this whole DNA, England DNA, but because they've stuck with it, or they've stuck with one blueprint for long enough, now you're starting to see the, the benefits now. Yeah. I, I think I'm, I'm really excited, not even just at international level, but at club level as well, seeing the standard of play that's been produced. Mm. And it seems that there's now, you know, that the ceiling that they hit is leading up into those under-23 games, which are still, you know, almost worthless. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's, an, it's a very broad conversation, that one. What, it, what, it's, what its value is to the game, I don't know. I don't know what the answer to this is, Mike. I think, I think if anything, I think Mason Mount's situation at Derby lately is, is very good for the game because it's shown you can still achieve things from the Football League. Mount's an outstanding player, so that obviously helps. And he's been, you know, he, he's been mapped for, for a very long time by, by the England technical staff. But, you know, it shows, right, well, he, there is, you know, there, there is no ceiling to dropping into the championship um, long term. And there is no problem with, you know, actually going to play professional senior football. Don't just sit in an academy and play. I, I don't know what reforms you could offer to the under-23 setup, but I, I stopped watching those games quite a long time ago just because it's not, doesn't feel very representative of, of football. Doesn't feel like it's it's actually a preparation for anything, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, Davy Joe, uh, with the exception of the actual World Cup and Euro Championship finals, is international football becoming obsolete or an afterthought? You know, we were talking before we had a conversation away from football before we came. Uh, we started filming, and I think that uh, I think the same about international football sometimes because I think you know what's what's its purpose. Mm -hmm. You know, we have to get our head round. Is it is it winning World Cups? Is it developing younger players? Um, because it, it it is losing its significance. There's no there's no you know there's no, there's no denying no, that. No. And I think that. You're right. It, it, because we've had some success recently, that you know we get a little bit more interest in it. But I think that feels temporary. Yeah, like it feels like a you know just a, it's refreshing, not to be hopeless at a World Cup. So yeah. you kind of, but that that has a that has a lifespan. I think. Yeah. That, yeah Final question from uh, Jordan Ob. How much confidence do you have in the FA to use the Wembley sale money if it occurs sensibly? And it not to be wasted on cronyism and bureaucracy. Uh, ooh, uh, not a lot of confidence. Um, there, there's a lot of I, uh, hard question to answer. I, there's a lot of good people at the FA. They're not. They don't tend to be the ones you hear from, though. That's the difference. So if you if you meet sort of some of the internal staff and you know you get to see them do their work and, and what they're like, they're they're, they're very impressive. Um, the people at the top, uh, they make baffling decisions. I mean, not just in relation to, to allocation of funding, but just in a terrible PR moments, like the Enya Luko thing and the Mark Sampson thing. It's just, and so you, you, you can't help but to factor that into right. This the, a, a you know a, a huge sum of money like that should be invested in X, Y, and Z, and let's focus on grassroots. And you know, kids have got to have playing fields to play on. Forget actual professional football. Allow people to play the sport just for recreational purposes, and that makes sense to the three of us. But then. A lot of other things which haven't happened at the FA make sense to us too. So, no, I'd love to be proved wrong, but I, I yeah, not a lot of confidence. Mm. There's a lot of talk about investing. You know, if that you know, they get 600 million or whatever it would be from that sale, a lot would be reinvested in 3G pictures mm. and things like that. I look around and I see 3G pictures not being used simply mm. because they're taken over by leisure concerns, and it costs 56 quid an hour to actually. Yeah. You know, yeah, you've got to have a structure which supports that. You can't, you, you can't just invest in in physical capital and then expect kind of the the, the benefits of that to, to take root. There has to be some management of that that goes along with it. So, so convoluted process. I, I I don't know how, whether the FA can manage that kind of thing. I, I don't know. Okay. So the final question then: um, PSV, IX, and Feyenoord have agreed to donate. 10% of their earnings from either the Champions League or Europa League to the rest of the clubs in the Eredivisie to almost equalise or help equalise competition for the general good. Yeah. Could something like that ever happen in England? I, I mean, I can't see it. I mean, whether that would make any difference because the, the clubs in general here at the Premier League, they get a hell of a lot more than, um, than the, the Dutch clubs and I think that's... If they did that, I don't think it would make much difference, would it really, to to those clubs? I think the the sums we're talking about, yeah, or the you know the, the fractions we're talking about, mm. uh, percentages. Sorry, I think it, it would it would make more of a difference to those Dutch clubs than it would do over here. But and, and again, I can't see it happening. Yeah, but should the, should the the general principle be you know um, rich helping the poor, yeah. and you know you. you you know, the Premier League will say, yes, we've got this solidarity money, but basically they use that as a baseball bat to hit people yeah. to, to, to get into line. 
we need a, 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 almost like a step change in attitude, don't we? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's barely a week since Bruce Buck made his comments about, you know, not Chelsea shouldn't... He made some terrible analogy about how, you know, Chelsea shouldn't be forced to, to return to the pack of the great unwashed or something. It's some awful, you know, callous comment which just exposed, you know, um, you know how these clubs are so dismissive of the, the wealth disparity in the game. So, yeah, it's got to be... It, it actually absolutely should exist because for the health of the sport itself, there is no Premier League originally without English football being what it is. And that is, a, in my opinion, a debt which has to be repaid eventually. Um, but the Premier League is a, a terribly powerful organisation. The clubs are even more so. And evidently, there's no appetite for that at all, which is very dispiriting. But, um, yeah, I, I think sort of, uh, you know, the, the, the elite sides in this country have a, you know, a... a, a crass dismissiveness of, of that issue and it's it's upsetting um. well should something radical happen here definitely will it not in a million years english football will eat itself thanks for joining us here on the football writers podcast Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.